Hello. Hi, Bethany. How are you doing today? I'm doing so well. How are you, Michelle? I'm doing well, thank you. I'm so excited to be able to talk with you, and I really appreciate mm -hmm. your willingness to come on the uh, the OG Rose Anchor Podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm I'm thrilled too. I mean, it's like probably my favorite book right now. <laughs> Yay! I, just, I mean, I just finished it like a month ago, so that's like, <laughs> you know. <laughs> That is so exciting. That'll be really fun then that we're talking about it. Um, yeah. So yeah, for, for the listeners, we're going to be talking today about Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. Um, it was written in, uh, I guess it was published in 1957. And um, Bethany just recently read it. And I actually read it seven years ago. But it's it's such an <laughs> in incredibly important book for me that I still remember um, a lot of the, the main things from it because it was so impactful. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's something that really sticks with you. Um, it's, it's kind of like wonderful and haunting and and moving and inspiring it's all of it <laughs> yeah I found it to be um just like very the aesthetic of it was very uh thrilling and that's probably why it sticks with you too because it's just like such a there's a lot of exhilarating moments yeah absolutely and, she really yeah. captures that really well in her writing and I remember um the whole reason I wanted to talk with you is because it came up in your conversation with Javier Rivera and I just was like oh my gosh you know the fact that it came up in your talk and, and you had mentioned the things that you really like really took away from it or or loved I was like oh my gosh I need to talk to Bethany about this book because <laughs> I I loved it too and um one of the things you said was that the way it was written really uh like of the novel itself and I would definitely say that that's one of the things um that you know definitely it pulled me in too like it really the way that mm -hmm. Ayn Rand writes this book which is actually like very very impressive because English was her second language so yeah. it's not and she yet she wrote this masterful very long very in, I mean but it doesn't even feel long because it's so it's, right. it draws you in so much that yeah. it's just, you're like on bated breath with every single page and like everything mm -hmm. that's going on with it so the way she writes is just to me incredible and it definitely it it has such profound and and truly like uh profound philosophical ideas but it's so literary you know it's so honestly like there there's something of a yeah just kind of a captivation with her writing that makes it I mean, I don't even really read a lot of popular novels, to be honest, but like it, mm -hmm. it you can you could read it and just read it in merely for enjoying the story. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, if, totally. If, if you didn't even want to go on the deeper levels of it. But I think it, it is able to do that actually because it has this thrust of the human spirit and like the things that matter to us and like real stakes and, you know, yeah. all of that. Like that's what actually makes stories, at least for me, you know, so enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I totally agree. I think that it's... um her characters are so strong and she um, gives them so much time and space to to be introduced. You also get um, significant amounts of backstory on um, on people like Dagny and Francisco. And um, so, I don't know, it creates a relationship between the reader and the characters, which I think is just a really strong literary form that is maybe not indulged or not not that kind of attention to a character is not given in contemporary literature um which makes it hard to read for me it makes like novels that don't that where I, I'm not introduced to the character really thoroughly they don't really stick with me yeah I really love that and I love what you're saying here and I think you're absolutely right and I agree and I, I kind of wonder I wonder if people 
I wonder why there is a shift away from that. If it almost feels like it's doing too much telling instead of showing or something, if you really get into the backstories of the characters. But for me, I, 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 I kind of, it makes me think about um, storyline. I feel like in Japanese anime, a lot of like the really good films and shows, they, they do this incredible buildup of like the character and mm-hmm. the, you know, why, why you should even like, it presents a rich enough profile and understanding of this character that it mm-hmm. makes you really care. You really care about the, that character. You know, you feel like you, you like know them, you know, yeah, you yeah. know, what matters to them and what, what they value, uh, what they don't value and what kind of gets them ticking and I think for me that's like super compelling and intriguing and I don't know like I'm just kind of curious just I mean I know it's kind of an aside but I wonder why that's often like not done in in sometimes more contemporary novels what do do you think well I think that it's um I think a lot of contemporary novels are just trying to depict um depict a scene I think that they're just trying to like make a make a tableau with their writing Mm -hmm. um and what's interesting about that is that where whereas visual art has moved away from the purely representational and moved more toward abstraction in modern and contemporary times literature it feels like it's done sort of the opposite um (laughs) where it, it's it's getting down to, or maybe it's done the same thing, I don't know, that, that this might just be a subjective take and you can argue it either way, but it feels like um, contemporary literature is just trying to represent a scene or a few scenes or represent like just something that, ha- an event that happened and occurred over time, over a, like whatever delineated uh, time time frame of the story and then that's it. And there's no like getting into the deeper concepts of what's actually happening. Something that I also think that Ayn Rand does really well um, that I, when I was reading it, I wasn't like piecing together. I wasn't thinking about the why or the reasoning, but but I knew that what she was doing really well was um, philosophizing. Like she was pushing forward her convictions about philosophy and her, and putting forward her own theories and also, but expounding on them through real world examples by telling this epic story. Mm-hmm. And I think that, um, and, and that was apparent to me while I was reading it, but then after I was reading it, I was like, how did she do this? How did she make philosophy so incredibly tangible um, through these real world examples or seemingly real, wor- real world examples? And it's, she, it's by introducing us to these characters. Um, yeah. And, and, and saying, as you said, like exposing their values, get, getting us deeper into why they're making the decisions that they're making, why they're doing what they're doing. And that is, um, that's a deeper engagement with philosophy, I think. Um, and so that feels very, I don't know, it feels like if, if we think about abstract art as, as something that gets to the rudimentary like concept of the world, rather than just a depiction, it feels like Atlas Shrugged is is truly abstract and modern. Um, the story is sort of the vehicle to get to these to these major abstract concepts, whereas like contemporary literature is sort of the picture of a of a scene. I don't know. I love that. I love that. I think that's really really good. And what I'm kind of hearing and what you're saying or what it makes me think about is how I think we get reliant on like um, 
cinematic movies, like basically a mm-hmm. lot of what American programming is for content and consumption in, in terms of the entertainment is mm-hmm. like, we're filming real people now, right? And there's some sort of like scene going on and you can't get a lot of the in the head of the people, like what's in their head, what's in their heart mm-hmm. um, without it kind of possibly looking kind of cheesy where like and like where there's like this inner dialogue and the person's face is just on the scene and like there's this inner you know what I'm saying like it can, yes. kind, of, it can kind of come across as cheesy in trying to do it through that medium and mm-hmm. uh and I understand it but then I think you lose out on a lot of the richness of what is going through on it, it, in the person's heart and head in terms of their values in terms of mm-hmm. the backstory and I think like and it might just be the medium itself that doesn't afford for that as easily with um uh you know, basically, I don't know what, there's probably a term for this, but basically just like when you're filming real human beings in a scene, mm-hmm. it doesn't afford as much for, you know, the, all of the other layers of it. Um, and I think, uh, I was talking about with that and then really good novel writing that I think Ayn Rand has done superbly with her, her book Atlas Shrugged. Um, they're not afraid to go there. Yeah. And, and like, they're not, I don't know, to me, I'm just like, they, I think there's something where they're like, screw it. If it's cheesy, I'm just going to like, they don't even care because they, they know that mm-hmm. it matters so much to the story that they're going to go there. They're going to show what's in what, what's sort of going through, through the mind of the person or through the heart of the person, sometimes through very simple things that the character might say on, in their solitude or mm-hmm. what they might do in their solitude that then yeah. shows something that matters for the interactions that are things you could very much see and could potentially film between two people. Yeah. And I yeah. think like, and I think too, there's a willingness to take the time. I think a lot of people find that like slow or it's like, they find it, it's weird. It's almost like they find it unrealistic and yet so much of our lives are spent with our own thoughts in, in like having an inner, inner dialogue that then, you know, will manifest or not depending with another yeah. human being or with other human beings. So I think, I think the, the willingness to just sort of say, I, I'm, you know, to go there is important, at least for me, I appreciate it. And I think there's a, there's a greater risk richness with those types of stories and how they really, they, they take it to the next level. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's like, it's not just merely a good story. Like your life is changed by this, you know, like <laughs> yeah. it really does. Like it's, it really helps to shift your whole view on, reality in life and your own what what you're doing and maybe that seems like a big statement but I think art should change like it should move us in those ways and whether it's something that you know is a really beautiful moment or something that even those highs you carry with you into into your day in and day out life um but I think it does I think it does take that like being able to actually flesh out the character and I and the characters that are presented and I think just a side note, but I, I want to kind of get to some of the text in part one, but I, mm-hmm. I really do think this is really interesting what you're touching on here, Bethany, with the abstract and the concrete mm-hmm. and this mm-hmm. really interesting relationship where it seems that there's always both at play, but it's like how we're both at play. And it's weird when, you know, you're saying that today in modern novels, it's like, it's kind of just the scene. And so it's trying to be more realistic. And yet somehow it ends up being, uh, it's almost like it ends up being too abstracted in that you can't always resonate with it on these deeper more philosophical ways and so I don't know to me I'm like super fascinated in that like how is that how is it that's something and I actually did like this little recording on it on like specific um or or like yeah specific slash details and then ambiguity slash abstraction and how those things are always in this this very interesting relationship of bothness 
Um, but it's always about like the how, how is that both happening, you know? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. sometimes the abstract is what is very uh, concrete and sometimes, or specific, and sometimes the specific is what's very abstract, mm -hmm. right? And I yeah. think that's really fascinating. Um, but I, I do think when it works really well is when, you know, again, I think there's this, this not being afraid to go deep within each character because, you know, the, I think people that is also what a lot of new entertainment goes for right it's a lot about novelty new experiences new places and such like that and all of those can be really cool but like there's such a well within each human being that offers such diversity and and value in and of themselves that I think mm -hmm. you know Ayn Rand recognizes and she pours that out like no holding back with all of her characters and that that's what makes it such an a compelling a compelling story yeah and just to just to say a bit on top of that before we get into the actual text itself i i think that there's um this uh, i think that the contemporary novels that just stick to um pure representation without without going beyond surface level like they they it feels like they're making absolute claims or they're trying to make absolute claims it feels like they also reduce the world and reduce the problems into a lot of black and white yeah. um and trying to make if if, the, if a contemporary novel is trying to make a moral claim it's often just very stark and black and white and there's not a lot of like because they're the characters are not brooding internally it just feels like they're like how did how did your character arrive at making this claim kind of thing and you know whereas like I I questioned a lot of like the relationship between Hank and Dagny the relationship like why did that happen especially considering what happens later in the book mm -hmm. and and I'm thinking like oh it's probably a, a device for Hank to like understand like for him it, like he had to go through this this mm -hmm. affair with Dagny which does happen in part one so it's not a spoiler <laughs> um uh he like he has to go through this affair so that he's thinking through the value and meaning in his marriage that he's like that it, it is sort of failing him um morally and ideally but anyway yeah I think that there's the other thing too is that there's a lot of people the whole reason why I read this book is because there's so much um criticism lobbed at it and saying like this should be, this book should be banned and this is a dangerous book and so obviously that's going to pique my interest it's <laughs> not going to deter me from um from reading it and so um and I found that a lot of those critiques were were quite reductive and like trying to apply this black and white moral claim to this book is like you know there's a lot of claims that like this is an immoral book because it's telling people to act selfishly but then I found that in fact, the people taking taking a sort of like group homogenous stance to an extreme, they were the ones who were acting ultimately selfishly. But anyway, um, yeah. So I think that there's just like this this tension between like how people write contemporarily. They are writing in a very stark and absolutist way, whereas like having these sorts of really long drawn out inner monologues going on for your characters is is like getting at the nuance sussing out the nuance yeah no that was really really good 
And yeah, I, I totally agree. And I, I definitely will put in my little description here about like that we will talk about specific stuff in the book. So if anyone wants to be completely surprised by what happens in the book, you know, maybe <laughs> listen to our talks after they've read uh, read the book. But, you know, there are some people who like it's a BMF, like it's it's a huge book. So some people yeah. are like, no, they're just happy to listen to it and learn a little bit more about it. Um, and maybe at some other point they could they could read it. But yeah, it is a great one. I always recommend it. And um yeah, I think I think you're totally right with what you're saying. And I, you know, it's funny, I, I'm trying to think about like, why I read the book. Honestly, I just, I don't know. I don't, I don't even know why. I mean, we have a lot of books in our house, you know, and I just, I think mm-hmm. I kept on seeing it just visually where it's located on our bookshelf. And I was just like, I just really want to read that. And so um, I, I, I don't know, I just picked it up. And I got really interested. And I actually read, um, I, I had read a little bit of Ayn Rand in like a lit classes. I, I'm an English mm-hmm. English Spanish double major so mm-hmm. I read a lot of books like or you know had a lot of reading <laughs> for my mm-hmm. schooling and whatnot uh did I always finish everything maybe maybe not no but um I I, I probably read more <laughs> thoroughly now and I usually read things to their completion if I really feel that like that drive to read it and it's it's I don't know to to me that's yeah a whole nother topic but I'm I'm I love being like driven to read something myself because when there's that that, yeah. that internal drive, I usually get a lot more out of it, to be honest. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I had read a little bit of Ayn Rand, like uh, one of her shorter pieces or maybe even a short story or sh- one of her short little novels. I mm-hmm. forget what it's called now, but but yeah, so I don't know what kind of renewed my interest in it. But I after reading this, I also re- read a biography about her life. Oh. And that was really interesting. I would mm. highly recommend that. And that was by... Uh, Barbara Braden, um, who mm. Nathaniel Braden was her husband, and it, it's super complicated life, like like <laughs> situations with Ayn Rand and her personal life and stuff. Mm. But um, it's actually interesting because it relates really the book, the way that um, Barbara wrote this biography, Bethany. She actually like ties it to the literary works that Ayn Rand was working on. So it's really oh, interesting, interesting to see how that like what kind of dialogue was going on there for her with her personal life and what she was writing. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah, but I wanted to, to to get back really quick to Dagny and just like talk about the fact that, um, you know, her character is just, just so, so impactful and, and just, she's such a incredible person and woman mm-hmm. and in her like bravado and her kind of like her intensity. And yeah. um, I really, yeah, was really struck by her. And I'm honestly like, she's probably one of the first women like that, that I'd really, I don't know how to put this she she shows such a different type of per, like um aspect of femininity you know yeah um yeah. like I, I don't really like this term to be honest but she kind of is like the ultimate girl boss you know she's she's like <laughs> she's like you know she, she knows what she wants to do she has a vision she's like not afraid to, to speak against the men and you know <laughs> like you know speak against I their know. ideas but she also really seems to have a very and this is like Ayn Rand herself she really loves like she loves men in that like she loves the masculine spirit and she really does not she's the she's so what I love about Ayn Rand and her writing and then Dagny in in particular is that she seems like she does go against a lot of the the kind of um I don't know norms or expectations for women but at the same time she she still has this ultimate respect for men and for masculinity and like the the need that both like this kind of reciprocal relationship yeah. that men and women have for each other like they there there's this idea that they need to see the spark within each other but ultimately yeah. that drives them back to themselves to feed those fires um yeah. but you know they so there's this kind of independence but also uh 
you know, reliance in terms of inspiration that she shows through her, especially through, through Dagny and also through Hank. Um, so I just, I wanted to say that on Dagny and mm -hmm. because that's really what stands out to me about her. She's like, she's kind of like this, I want to say it's, it's like she shows some things that might be considered to be feminist, but yet she's not, she, I think she would also like not at all want to be associated with like mainstream yeah. feminism, you know? Yeah, totally. That's what I found really confounding. And I loved it too. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. That Because so I was just like, yeah, I was just like, wow, this is a person who would, I think, perceive feminist theory as like very frivolous and like not really saying anything yeah. but she is a total girl boss <laughs> and like she she is this character it's it's totally and this is something that I'm still like thinking through for myself and like trying to figure out how the two things how this contradiction like can exist but um but because she, she really does uh and she's emblematic of this like powerful woman who is the only woman in the room in her industry kind of thing, who stands up to the men um, and has ambition and follows her ambition. But there's, I guess, and so, and so she's this emblem of like feminist thought and like what feminism aspires women to be kind of thing. However, she is not, she, I, I think that there's like this sense of, um, she's, Dagny is also not entitled and she, yeah. there are moments in the novel where she very clearly um, seeks out humility. And this is like not a, not a gender specific thing. I think that each, every main character uh, humbles themselves at very, like very, very pertinent moments in the book. Um, and I don't know, that to me is sort of like this reject, like the, the willing to accept humility and like not being on a power trip, just like having amb having a purpose and having ambition drive toward that purpose is, um, it, I don't know, it separates it from, it separates it from like sort of identity politics, yes. I guess. Um, yeah. yeah, and like the sort of like identity-based cultural criticism. It's yeah. just sort of like, which is, which is very, um, that's very in line with like this individualism that Ayn Rand um, is a proponent of. And just sort of like you have the individual spark inside of you and that's your purpose and that's what you should be driving toward. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah, I totally agree with what you're saying. And I think she, she's someone who would be like the first one to, you know, race a man, like as in like be willing to compete mm -hmm. with a man, but she would be happy to def be defeated by that man if he was actually better than her, you know? Exactly. Like she, yeah. she would accept that. Like she would, she would see it and, and she would then, she would be defeated and then she would get up and start trying harder, you know, because she's right, like, right. I, I won't give up and I will continue to, but it's not for this. She's for like excellence, you know? Right. And right. so whether that's a man or a woman, it doesn't matter. It's about the excellence and the, the willingness to put your blood, sweat and tears into it. And I yeah. love that about, uh, about, uh, you know, Dagny's character, you know, where she s does have this willingness to, again, confront the men in her field, but she also has this deep admiration for uh, when she sees somebody pursuing excellence, when you know when when a man is doing that it's like very uh enlivening for her and she respects right. that you know right and so right. I think yeah. that's really really cool and I think too what you said about the identity politics versus like the individual and the spark of the individual yeah she uh she seems to be somebody who does make me think of like Nietzschean themes you know she was actually mm -hmm. Ayn Rand was very influenced by Nietzsche mm -hmm. and um, I think there's this willingness to be different, to be a contradiction in your own, like to, to do things that look very 
even contradictory or to hold the tension of the bothness. And yeah. uh, I, I, lo- I love that about, uh, you know, I've been, I've been studying more uh, recently on Nietzsche and Zarathustra in particular, because there's a conference coming up held by Dr. Fidel last this weekend that I'll be speaking mm-hmm. at um, on basically womanhood and motherhood related mm-hmm. to Nietzsche. And, um, but actually Ayn Rand is perfect for this topic um, because she, she is able to see how the spark of the individual is so essential for the fullness and the vivacity of life, for the, for the vigor of life and for making mm-hmm. it something worthwhile and worth living and worth perpetuating, even, you know, per, you know, propagating through procreation. Right. Um, I think that procreation is one avenue. Another is through creative works, you know, right. to create something of your own is a type of uh, maternal drive as well. And you, you know, so there's, you know, I think there's, there's different types of avenues for that. Um, you know, she was married, but she actually intentionally chose not to have children because she didn't feel she could do it at uh, the service she would want to do it and be a writer uh, and pursue mm-hmm. her, her novels. So for her, her, her books were her children, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, uh, and so, but I think she's very like, that's what I do love about uh, her writing and, and specifically in this book where she shows, um, and, and this is later on the, in, in the book with Gold's Gulch, but she shows a myriad of, of types of characters who do actually choose different roles in their life. And ultimately right. she honors that even if it looks like motherhood or it looks like, um, you know, being a blue collar worker or white, co- like to her, she's like, I don't, I don't care. What I care about is that you make that choice and that you see, you find the value in it for yourself and right. that you do it excellently as the best of your ability. You know, yes, you'll try, you'll trip and fall, but you get back up. Um, yeah. and, and so she definitely has a grit about her and uh, that she displays in her characters. And that's definitely Nietzschean to me. <laughs> that's really interesting. And I, um, and I really like that, ex- applying that example um, of, of like Nietzsche, the Nietzschean influence <laughs> applying to Dagny is really, is really interesting and cool because a lot of people, again, I think that a lot of uh, people who, who want to bring in identity politics or, or identity based criticism onto Nietzsche is like, there's, there's a constant like, oh, well, Nietzsche was categorically misogynist and like, you can't, you can't read Nietzsche or think of Nietzsche in any kind of way except for like misogyny and but it's but that's completely not true um because there's there's this characterization of the human spirit which like when written from the perspective of of Nietzsche who is a man is going to center his own experience um and so I like that there's this framing of Dagny as like the more feminine <laughs> yeah uh, yeah she's like an she overwoman or something you know yeah <laughs> yeah i love that yeah yeah thank you yeah i think that's great and i i'm i'm all about reading like the the, the controversial people like nietzsche and um and ayn rand you know i think that yeah when people are like oh they're just this i i to me i'm like well you you know maybe they are i don't know why don't we go ahead and actually explore their works and see mm-hmm. what we can learn from them um, you know, at the end of the day, they were humans too. So of course they were not perfect people. And yes, mm-hmm. unfortunately, both Nietzsche's work and Ayn Rand's work can be taken and, and to support things that I wouldn't necessarily support. And there are works that I think are, that definitely inspire me and are toward things that I do believe in, you know, um, mm-hmm. especially in terms of this human, uh, the, the, the human spirit and that drive to create and to pursue something that, uh, is often, you know, misunderstood, or, you know, seems like (laughs) completely unrealistic, but yet, you know, to continue to pursue it regardless. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And I think like something just a quick side because this is just really kind of a little a little thing about the book that I loved. I love that it had to do with with trains and railway lines. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love like I love train trips <laughs> through the countryside, and and I love that. And my yeah. dad, my dad actually worked on a railway line for several years in South Africa. Um, going from like the north to the east, uh, he would work on the train lines um, as a conductor and, you know, who talk about like t- writing down people's ticket information while the train would sway, you know, and, uh, you know, I just loved learning all about <laughs> his experience as, as like on the trains. And so the fact that this book had to do with uh, railway lines and such, to me was just like, I don't know, I get very, it's a kind of like a romantic impulse or like nostalgic or like, you know, all of the like old time sort of uh, things like railway carts and you know mm-hmm. on, the, on the the on the trains and all of that like all of that came to to mind for me when I was reading the book and maybe just from a completely subjective standpoint I, I enjoyed that a lot yeah I enjoyed it a lot too I mean there's a lot that is um I feel the more and more I just am because I, I moved from I mean I'm from New Mexico but I moved back to New Mexico two years ago from New York and I was living in New York for five years. And so I feel like there's the more time that passes, the more I realize that there's just this really potent energetic highway between the two locations. And mm-hmm. I feel like that is, um, I feel I loved this like cross country railway archetype or symbol um, in this book because it, it reminds me, because there's this like from the East Coast, from New York center of the world or whatever. And then this railway line coming out to the Southwest, which is like this other um, like burgeoning center and like burgeoning center of like industry and um, and world building. And so I just I that resonated with me as well. I mean, I, I just I just loved that. And uh, um, I think that it's it's sort of like mystical. My thoughts only only reach like to a myth, mystical point at, at this at this point, because I'm like, wow, there really is this like connection between this like part of the this like southwestern part of the country and the east coast and like that it's amazing that there's I think that the, the, it captures um and this I don't know I don't I only know a little bit about Ayn Rand's background and um coming from from Russia and I think that there's this like enamor she's enamored sort of with this American um drive to like push to to like ever expand you know which is like complicated um yeah. that's a that's a complicated impulse and a complicated thing to um to unpack but I think that she's uh I think that she's also like enamored with this with this idea of like people built this railroad and they connect to um they connect like huge swaths of land and yeah. I don't know yeah no I absolutely I, I absolutely agree and I think that you know the book does tie New York City and and the the western regions and I think that's so perfect for you, Bethany, just thinking about <laughs> locations of where you've existed and dwelled and um, your own background. Um, so I think that's really, really a neat kind of connection you have personally with the novel. And um, yeah, I love that. I love that Ayn Rand is so able to talk about the, the she's able to capture the energy of cities and the, mm-hmm. the what that brings. Um, it's good and it's bad, right? And then also the, the good and bad of like the, these more rural swaths of land like she I think she does a really great job like to me what one of the things that she does so excellently is always to show to capture like the essential spirit of something and able to articulate it 
and give you this whole sense of like actual placement in in both both the city mm-hmm. and then both be, both being out in the country and sort of the what I mean by the good and the bad of it is like there's this sort of both the beauty and also sometimes the tragic things about it too but that's mm-hmm. that's part of life that's part of it it's not it's not to be like she doesn't look away from it she looks right at it you know mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. she's not afraid to look right at it and really give it give it articulation and description and I just think it's very very captivating and and I think she does like display this she the space for both like the, she sees the good in the in in the 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 ripeness of the the raw land and all these like areas out in you know in the that like mm-hmm. in in Mexico and like in in yeah basically like right in Eurasian New Mexico Arizona that whole area mm-hmm. California all of these places and then she talks about like New York as this kind of like almost the the apple but like it like a heart or something like somehow there's mm-hmm. these bloodlines going out or something like that where a lot of the ideas are generated in this this tiny kind of actually tiny everything else and right how, what is right the kind of they have this there's which they collaborate but sometimes it's almost like they can also be these two forces right where it's like just mere bulk and body versus the heart and the mind or something like that you know in thinking about them as like right, totally. kind of juxtaposition there between the big land swaths and then the the small city um and so yeah small city but big influence right and it's like big mm-hmm. land but sometimes mm-hmm. often thought of as the small things or like you know small potatoes but ultimately she sees the value in the everyday person like uh, or the layman, like that, that's a term Javier really likes. And I think it's really good to look mm-hmm. at and, and consider the layman, the worker, you know, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. she's so good at doing that. She's so good at seeing the true value of the everyday person and the value of what is in that everyday person in and of themselves. And and it's not what she defines, but what she sees the person defining for themselves in themselves and right, in what they right. do and what the, what the work is that they do. And I don't know to me I'm just I'm just it was I don't I don't always feel like she does that so masterfully like where she can consider all all of these things at the same time uh through this really compelling storyline you know um yeah I think a lot of times like that's why her philosophy might be so much more accessible and tenable and, and readable is because she actually does take into consideration um every type like all, all types of people right all all, mm-hmm. all all types of people and like she's really big on the idea that philo- philosophy will be like secondhand smoke you know so if you don't think about it you're getting something anyways you're right. supposed to think something anyways and so for her she doesn't think about it like the ivory tower of philosophy and then everyone else you know she's like she obviously challenges that a right. lot, like in the book of like what happens when we do get ivory towers or these people thinking they know everything about you know the small town in uh, you know, um, in, in, you know, like in New Mexico or Nevada or something like that. Like mm-hmm. she's, she's really good about pulling out those tensions um, while still maintaining that philosophy does have a place. Like it's, it's very, it's very important because it always orients how we live our lives, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I think for me, she's for all the claims about her, and for all of the things that like, yeah, you know, there's, there's some things that I said, you know, as I mentioned, can be problematic overall mm-hmm. about her objectivist philosophy. But, but the, one of the things I just love so much about Ayn Rand and her, and especially about Atlas Shrugged is how, you know, how she makes, bring it home. she brings it back to the everyday man. And, uh, you know, whether you're somebody who would say you care about philosophy or don't care about philosophy, she shows how, you know, how truly like pe- people matter. 
because of mm-hmm. this kind of inside flame that they have that they mm-hmm. can they can either feed or they can allow to be quenched and squashed by everyone around them who doesn't understand it you know yeah. um so anyways i just wanted to to say that as well yeah i really like that framing i don't think that i ever this the the framing that you just that you just did about this like philosophy belonging in the ivory tower versus belonging to the every to the every man to the layman um i don't think that i have that i have made that connection yet but i really like it because it's true because there's so many a lot of the nefarious characters are sort of like what they what they say to the public and to large groups of people is like oh well you don't want to you don't want to uh like burden yourself with frivolous thoughts like why would you want to investigate knowledge or something like that because that's not practical or whatever and in that maneuver those nefarious characters are saying like philosophy doesn't belong to you and yeah. just like leave it up to leave it up to a few specialized individuals kind of thing and um and you know I picked up on that like that that being the their main evil but but I think that it's it's really nice the way that you sort of or how I interpreted what you were saying the way that you sort of say that like Ayn Rand first of all believes and, and is holds a conviction that philosophy belongs to everybody, but then just in the way that she's writing about the everyman and also in the way that she expounds on her main characters um, and, and making philosophy accessible and tangible through, through this novel, through fiction writing, is sort of an embodiment or an acting out of that belief that philosophy belongs to everybody. Yeah. I like well, that a lot. Oh, thank you. I'm so, so happy that was helpful. And um, thank you for expanding upon it, too, because that was, you know, I'm glad that it was helpful and that it could be thought about that way. And honestly, like, um, yeah, I'm just I'm grateful to Ayn Rand that she was able to do that, you know, because Mm -hmm. I don't know that a lot of people I haven't encountered, especially moving it from philosophy into literature, where Mm -hmm. that is so able to be done. Um, But for those who can do it, it's it really does stand out. And it really makes a big, it does make a big impact and kind of remind us of like, just something like a a way she saw the world that then can help us understand the world better too. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think your, how you put it too was, was really good and really helpful. This idea of like, oh, don't, you know, don't, don't think about that. It's like, those are impractical things to think about or to question all while those people use ideas to kind of manipulate other people and, you know, uh, use it as like power over other people. So that's the thing. I think for Ayn Rand, she was very aware of what ideas can do. And she yeah. was very aware of, in seeing uh, in, in Russia, seeing Soviet Russia and seeing the downfall in her own country. Um, she was very aware of what it can do when you just tell people like, oh, you're right. Like, you know, philosophy is just snooty. And, you know, it, we should just like, not, you know, we should just think yeah. of it as like completely irrelevant. And it is irrelevant. Those, you know, those if you t- if you frame it that way, unfortunately, it leaves it too open to a small select do, taking it over and sort of right. using it. So it's still going to be used somehow, you know, it's still present. And I think she, she wants to say like, be skeptical in a way of those who are either glorifying it or degrading it because both have right. offer a type of risk. And I think what she wants to say is, look, it's not, it's like air. This is, this is something that, um, you know, or, or I like to think of philosophy as, as air. I like to think of the use mm-hmm. of philosophy as fire. So for mm-hmm. her, she's like, this is fire. You know, this can either burn stuff down or 
um, you know, or you can cook your food with it. Or sometimes yeah. you don't need it because it's nighttime and you, it, it's okay for it to be dark or something like that. Mm-hmm. So she, I think she holds a nuance of understanding like the fact that there's this tension with philosophy itself uh, where it can be either, you know, um, yeah, used for good, used for bad. But I think she would I think she would say that it's always going to be used somehow. It's always going to exist somehow. So mm-hmm. if you're not if you're not aware of that and if you're not really taking it upon yourself to explore it for yourself or what just think about what do you believe? Why do you do what you do? What, why do you think what you think? Um, I think she's very concerned with people being manipulated or, you know, being controlled or being smothered yes. um, because of what she saw again, what she saw in her own country, you know? Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So I don't mean to like harp on that so much, but I think it's important to think about where she's coming from and why she would care so much to talk about how the philosophy does relate to the to the everyday life and why it should be in the hands of the everyday people. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And I'm I'm just compelled to always think like these again, the the criticism of this book um, is always like she wants people she's saying that selfishness acting in your own self-interest is good or whatever and that's why the book is dangerous or whatever and I'm just and and I'm just compelled to after I read it I was just like no that's a completely wrong take and I I don't know like why I don't know who is like making this criticism or whatever but like it's that's just plain wrong because she what she wants is for people to not be manipulated as a large group and like and sort of this group think she's she's critiquing groupthink and she's she's um not critiquing um like doing things for other people she's she's saying like you can easily be be manipulated and be and be controlled if if everybody is like acting under one narrative or if everybody has lost their individual drive but anyway that's yeah, yeah, I just no, I just I, keep thinking about how those critiques are just like plain wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'm really glad you got into that. I'm glad you shared on why you think it's wrong. And I think, uh, you know, uh, Nietzsche too gets really um, pegged with this as well, right? That he that mm-hmm. he's selfish or he promotes selfish ideas. And, um, you know, and, and fair, like, like, if, if you take just if you take it like a sentence out of, you know, of, of one of his works, you could probably, you know, if it's taken out of the larger context, yeah, I guess you could, you could say anything about what Nietzsche is saying, or you can make that claim, but is it substantiated? And if you look at the broader, if you look at Nietzsche's broader work, or if you look at Ayn Rand's broader understanding of reality, um, I think what, what's important to understand is that what she's trying to say is that sometimes the things that on the outside can look so selfish end up being what offer the most to other people. Um, yes which is which is a strange tension it isn't i it is ironic and paradoxical in a way Mm -hmm. um but i think too she would be very critical of of people being selfish um in using other people like yeah her her the things that i think her type of if we want to call it selfishness let's just let's just go with what people are living at her right if if we want to say that ayn rand's work or you know in atlas shrug that people that she promotes people being selfish I would say that, okay, I can agree with that if we want to understand that that selfishness is, indi- it is self-sustaining and it is, right. um, and it is self-driven. Now, right. yes, will it have impacts on other people? Yeah, because we are always in relation. We are always in relation to other people. Our self is always in connection with the world, the environment, other people, other relationships. But I think she, she promotes, I would, I would change that term from selfishness to intrinsic motivation. 
yeah. think she's all about intrinsic motivation. But see, it's if if in a culture where we don't always know how to cult even know how to cultivate that, let alone like understand what that is. I think people can understand what it is, but it's difficult to because it's so particular, right? It's so unique mm-hmm. to each individual. It's so hard to understand what we what do we even mean by that. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. it, I think that it gets very misunderstood. It's very easy to just always see that as selfish um, because. Yeah. Because the per- it's weird. It's actually because the person can actually be they're, they're able to be independent with their own project, and they don't they don't actually need other people to um, like to, to help them with this. Like I, I and I think though she would admit that people do still need one another, and they still have relations, and mm-hmm. they still will have um, ways in which they rely upon each other. I think it's always going to be a bothness. But in mm-hmm. terms of these projects and such. Um, I think what she would be for is, is somebody being able to be self-driven, you know? Yeah. And I think that's, that's, if we want to say, is that selfish? Well, I think in that, if in that sense of the word selfish, that's actually helpful because then that person doesn't end up trying to use everybody around them for their happiness, you know? Right. Totally. And, and this is Dagny Taggart, the character just encapsulates this because to me it's Dagny is ambitious and she's acting in her own self-interest for sure. But she is, her project is serving huge swaths of people. And there are horrible consequences when, when you're not acting in that, that that come out throughout the novel, there, there are horrifying consequences when you're not acting in the interest of like, of the, the ambition and the purpose of running a railway um, and Mm -hmm. uh, running a transcontinental railway and, um, and so Dagny is is acting for her own self, but serving a whole continent of people, and making and and also serving industry and and workers who are uh, who have to work across across a whole continent to make things to make things go and function every day. So to me, Dagny is like is the main is Dagny's character and her storyline is the main proof that it's not in the it's not about selfishness. <laughs> Yeah, that's so good. And I'm really glad you like exemplify that, like show that example through Dagny. Um, and it, it is really, it is really strange, right? Because it's so easy to just on a very uh, kind of like on a low order causality be like, oh, well, she's just doing stuff for her self-interest. So she's selfish. And mm-hmm. yet like what we, what we don't take into account is that the self that she is quote unquote serving is also in connection to other people already. And it's in connection to a broader world and environment and a pursuit and a dream and a vision for things to be excellent, for things to be, you know, basically like flourishing and and more life, more growth. That Mm -hmm. when she serves herself, she is in a way also serving humanity. Um, And and the irony is, is that sometimes for people who are like adamant about serving humanity and, you know, like, you know, basically like you to never really listen to that little small voice that's telling you or encouraging you to do some sort of project or to do something on your own or to do something for your, for your own like development. Right. Um, or like, I guess what I mean to say is like that, that, that voice that's help, that kind of encourages, yeah, again, doing something that doesn't make you rely on other people, but can mm-hmm. be self-generated and then offer to other people. This is not like mere isolation, obviously that that's the other yes. thing I love about it is like, again, it's this serving of self that then ends up serving humanity. It has something so powerful to offer other people because she took took it upon herself to quote unquote, be selfish, right? It's like, yeah. it's so strange. And I, it's weird because like I was, to get back to what I was saying, the, when we get bent on serving humanity, 
that's where I think we un- unintentionally the selfishness selfishness crops up and uh-huh. I, I I think I really want to think a little bit harder about this but I'll put a pin in that but but yeah I think it might be because like who is humanity right and maybe it's just yeah. the fact that you're trying to serve an abstraction like you can't I think that's another thing for Ayn Rand she's like you know yourself you can you yes there's something right. there's a lot out of your control but there is a lot of you can control you it's a great humanity point. is like a completely faceless concept you know mm-hmm. I don't know what do you think no, I think that that's an excellent point because there is, um, because there are characters who, what they say and sort of what they're doing is like, well, I'm serving the rest of this company and like the sort of, um, in the, the whole like John Galt mystery as that unfolds, you realize that there are these people who are like trying to run an industrial company and say like, but we're serving the whole company and we're serving all of the people and, and these leaders at the top are just are, are ver- paying lip service to this like communitarian um, collectivism. But what ends up happening is that those people are way worse exploited. The, the workers are, are exploited way worse because they're not given, they're not given the tools to understand their own individual spark. They're not given the tools to, to act on their own purpose and to, um, and to rise above their own selves in, in accordance with that individual purpose. And so, and, but yeah, it's, it's a great point that like everything can kind of be um, obscured by this label of humanity and humanitarianism um, can obscure things and, and say like, well, you have to act in the interest of, of other people who are, and, and which that is very, um, happens every day in, with media now today, contemporaneously, it's like, you have to act in the interest of, um, of the people across the world from you or you have to act in the interest of people in the future and which those claims are true on their surface. You do have to act, you do have to have to be in the interest because as you say, we're all relational and you do have to act in the interest of other people. You can't just, you can't just like totally be selfish, but you have to be dedicated to yourself first because your own individual purpose and your own individual striving can affect positively the this the humanity and the future these like future collectives yeah yeah absolutely I, I think that's spot on and that was really really well articulated and yeah I, I I'm just I'm really happy we're talking about this book and yeah. we're, we're gonna we're probably gonna have to close it now but what yeah. this is is we're gonna be doing shorter talks on Atlas Trucks so um it's gonna be a three-part series I might want to try and make it four with you Bethany because I feel like <laughs> yeah. it's just such a rich book and you know there's there's still more probably to talk about with even part one um, in terms of like some specific scenes that I was wanted to kind of bring up, but maybe we can do like um, a part two to part one or something. And then we can keep Mm -hmm. going with the rest of the book. Um, But again, I really want to thank you so much for your time. And I really loved hearing your ideas and it was really formative for me and helpful um, in thinking further on this novel. So thank you again for your time, Bethany. Yeah. Thank you, Michelle. This was great. Yeah, it was so great. I I I love yeah, I love just talking to others. I, I've been trying to get some of my other friends to read this book so that I can talk to other people. So it's really nice to, it's nice to explore this with you in conversation. Oh, yay. I'm so happy. I'm so happy. I, I really do like geek out over the novel because I love it so much. And <laughs> I could talk about it for, you know, probably like days on end. <laughs> so yeah. I'm really happy we can talk with each other more about it. Yeah. And I can't wait to talk with you again in our next session. And yeah, yeah um, thank you again so much for your time. And thank you for anyone who was able to listen to us talk about it today. And yeah, hope you have a great rest of your day, Bethany. You too. Thanks, Michelle. Bye-bye. Thanks so much. Bye. <laughs>